when I see my brother next, I'm totally going to do that. <laughs> Just smash your face <laughs> against his. I've missed you. Welcome to Franchise Frights Podcast. That's Mandy. And that's Cam. How's everybody doing today? Woohoo! Guys, we're like steaming through February, and that's good. You think so? Yes, because <laughs> I want it done. Because today's what, the fourth? Well, yeah, but when this comes out, it's what, like the eighth? Eighth? <laughs> yeah. That means we're over a week Woo! into the worst month of the year. It's just flying by. Yes. That means there's only three weeks left. You're just trying to get to your birthday. I I like my birthday. Yeah. I don't like when it is, but yeah. I like the holiday of my birthday. Oh. Yeah. My birthday is a holiday. Okay. Uh, if you guys want to send me presents... Uh, you can just go ahead and... Our address is on the bottom of the website. Yes. Well, yes. not our address. You can't come find us. No. Our P.O. box. Our P.O. box. Yeah, you could send me gifts. I like things. Um, I like the Chicago Blackhawks. No. And horror things. Yeah. And ghost. Ooh, ghost. <laughs> so what's new? Not much. Not much? No. No. It's been kind of a boring week. It really has. I'm okay with that. Just work and we went to Nolan's state speech competition yep. and that's about it. Mm -hmm. We didn't even watch any horror That's this what I was week. just going to say. We didn't even watch anything scary. No. I watched Leave the World Behind. And Punched the Desk. And Punched the Desk. Rawr. It's a good movie, but don't watch it. <laughs> it's a good movie, but don't ever, ever subject yourself to it. There's no answers. I hate that. It just ends. You know what I realized what? just now? Next week's episode is our last one in our second round of movie reviews. I know. That's insane. It's very insane. Just like we're steaming through February, we're really steaming through our movies. You think so? So, guys, we have stickers. <laughs> Nobody has sent us a message to receive stickers. That's a lie. Who did? AK. Oh, no. I just sent him some. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just sent him some out of the goodness of my heart. Oh, you're so nice. Everybody else has to fucking work for it. Yeah. We only like one person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, send us a DM and give us your mailing address, even if it is just a P.O. box. Yeah. And we will send you a sticker and some business cards. It's even better because then you don't have to worry about us coming to find you. Yes. <gasps> because I will eat your cheese crackers. We'll show up on your doorstep. If you have cheese, it's they're mine. And demand you to feed us. Yes. Oh, food's good. And entertain us. If you can juggle or do close-up card oh magic. Oh my God, if you can juggle, I want to learn how to juggle so bad and I can't do it. I want my wife to learn close-up card magic <sighs> and she won't do it. I won't do that. 
I can juggle with two things. You can. I just can't get that third thing in there. <laughs> I can juggle with one thing, which I think is just called tossing and catching. <laughs> I'm not really even that good at that. No. My hands are just for show. I apologize because I need to take a drink now and I'm drinking from a circle. And anybody that's ever drank from a circle, you know you can't drink out of it without feeling like Napoleon Dynamite. Like <laughs> like when he's drinking his Gatorade after he's practiced dancing. Yes. Th- th- that's just what it is. There's no other way to drink from it. No. You're going to make a sloshy noise. Uh-huh. While she's doing that, I will tell you, if you haven't left us a rating or review on the podcast listening app of your choice, we would very much enjoy for you to do that. We would. And also, share us with your friends. You could share us on the social medias or just walk up to somebody and be like, boom, you like horror movies, you like podcasts. Yeah. I know a horror movie review podcast. Yeah, like what happened to you today? You saw somewhere wearing a horror movie hoodie. Hoodie. And I said, hey, do you like podcasts? And she said, I do. And I said, you should listen to my wife's and my podcast. And she pulled out her phone and immediately went to it. Yeah. She didn't follow it. (laughs) I hope. I hope she did. I don't know. So, do you have any horror movie news? I feel like I did, but now I don't remember it. Killian Murphy. Oh, yes! (laughs) I was like, I knew I told you something this week, but I couldn't remember what it was. They're going to make 28 years later, and Killian Murphy's going to be in it, and Danny Boyle, is that his name? Yes. Is going to direct it. I'm excited for that. I'm super excited. 28 weeks later wasn't horrible, but it was was rather forgettable. Yeah. It was... I don't want to sound weird saying this, but it was very Americanized. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really enjoy that. Yeah. No, they've had enough time that, like, hopefully this will be thought out. Yes. So I have a little bit of horror movie news. You do? On February 27th, a movie called Camp Pleasant Lake is opening. Camp Pleasant Lake follows Rick and Darlene Rutherford, who attempt to breathe life into the eerie remnants of an old campsite. Unaware of its dark past, strange occurrences haunt the area, mirroring the tragedies of the old camp, where two decades earlier, a young girl was kidnapped and her parents were brutally murdered. Ooh. And here's a little quote about it. Amidst chilling atmospheres and long-forgotten secrets, the couple grapples with a horrifying revelation. They are entwined in the camp's history. And as shadows of the past collide with the present, the Rutherfords must confront the haunting history of a sinister crime. Oh. So yeah, that sounds pretty okay. It's kind of, is it, it's, mm, it says camp. Yes. So I think like summer camp. I think that's what it is. But like, do families go to summer camps? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe... Maybe it's just like a campground. I know. That's why. Yeah. And that's a very small detail and doesn't hold any worth. I just was curious. Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. I know. (laughs) But it comes out the day before my birthday. Yep. What a day. Oh, boy. What day is your birthday on this week? I haven't even looked. This This week? Year. Um, We can celebrate my birthday every week if you want. (laughs) 
give me food. Uh, I, I want to say it's like a Wednesday or a Thursday. Oh, boy. Not fun. Not good. Mandy, what movie did we watch? We watched Scream 2. <gasps> would you like to give the facts and figures? I would love to. The dog just scared the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> He's hiding under our desks. I didn't know he was down there and like his leg or his head touched my leg and I was like, <laughs> there's a creepy crawly. <laughs> All right. So we watched Scream 2. It was released December 12th, 1997. It stars David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jamie Kennedy, Laurie Metcalf, Jerry O'Connell, Jada Pinkett Smith, and I can never say his name. Is it just Liev? Liev. Liev. Schreiber. Schreiber. And? That's all I had. Timothy Oliphant? Oh, I didn't put Timothy Oliphant. Omar Epps? Meh. <laughs> um, it was directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, produced by Wes Craven, Kathy Conrad, and Marianne Madalena. Sure. Okay. Cinematography by Peter Deming, music by Marco Belt. Beltrami? I, th- I think it's Bel- Beltrami, maybe. Beltrami? Sounds good. That's how I've always said it, okay. but I say things wrong. <laughs> Production company is Conrad Pictures and Craven Madalena Films, distributed by Dimension Films. Its runtime is 120 minutes. Hey, that's two hours. It's exactly two hours. Um, its budget was $24 million? Yeah, that's $45 million today. What's the box office? Because I wrote that it was only twelve million, and I'm guessing there's supposed to be a zero in there somewhere. No, it's a uh, 172 million. Oh, oh, okay. Or 326 million today. I knew that wasn't right. I'm like, they didn't get half of their budget at the box office. <laughs> <laughs> um, it has an IMDb score of 6.3, a Rotten Tomatoes critic score of 82 percent and an audience score of 58%. Ooh, the audience wasn't happy. I know, that's kind of weird. The Rotten Tomatoes critics' consensus is as follows. As with the first film, Scream 2 is a gleeful takedown of scary movie conventions that manages to poke fun at terrible horror sequels without falling victim to the same fate. But I think it does. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any reviewers? I do. Neil Smith from the BBC said, According to Randy, the body count in a sequel is always bigger and the deaths are always more elaborate. Rules that screenwriter Kevin Williamson takes to heart in a blood-soaked follow-up that leaves few of the cast unscathed. You know, I read a few reviews saying that this movie was gorier than the first. It's not. It's not. Do we not remember Steven from the first movie yeah. with his guts falling out of him? No, there's nothing like terrible in this movie. No, it's just like stab and move on. Yeah. Uh, Leonard Clady of Variety said, Handsomely shot by Peter Deming with an eerily unsettling score from Marco Beltrami, the film is a smooth piece of goods. The cast is top notch. He also went on to say, During one of Randy's film classes, the students ponder whether any sequel ever topped the original. Scream 2 is certainly worthy of being part of that debate. Oh. I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Walter Adgio? Adgio? We're just going to go with it. Sure. (laughs) 
from the San Francisco Gate said, it's not as good as the original, which was fresher, funnier, and scarier. But if it were, then by criteria of the film's resident movie scholar, it wouldn't be a genuine sequel. That's true. I know. Always listen to Randy. Yeah. Mark Savlov of the Austin Chronicle says, Despite Williamson's knowing turnabout on the whole sequel issue, Scream 2 lacks the visceral, punchy feeling of, of realization the first film engaged its audience with. He also said, It's one of the better sequels to come out in many years, and although it doesn't pack the same emotional wallop as the first film, it's still head and shoulders and punctured eyeballs above most of what's out there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have more more thoughts or more critics? I don't. Do you want me to go say first what I think of it? I want you to speak English better. <laughs> more gooder. Do it more gooder. <laughs> I, I didn't have a whole lot of thoughts on this because honestly, I don't know that I've seen this movie that many times. Really? Maybe five. Oh. I, I think I've seen it. 500. Probably close. Nev looks so good in it. <laughs> My first few thoughts are that I remember it being full of cameos. Like, they kill off so many famous people. Yes. Um, And I think the twist ending is dumb. And I don't remember there being any unforgettable kills. Okay. It was concise. (laughs) Uh, I said, this was another, like, movie that I was so eagerly anticipating. And I still remember the media blitz. Like, this movie was all over MTV. Yeah. Uh, I went to this one on opening night, just like I did for the original, and I really wasn't blown away by it, but I was ready to watch it over and over again as soon as it hit VHS. (laughs) I love this movie, but I feel like it falls very short of the original, and I think they could have waited more than a year to release a sequel and like fleshed out the secondary characters a little more. Mm -hmm. Like In the original... Randy and Tatum felt a lot more real than Derek and Mickey and Hallie. Yes. Like they just, they were just people on a page. But even in this movie, it's like, I don't like Randy in this movie. I don't like Dewey in this movie. Yeah. And part of that, I think, was they were trying to do the everybody's a suspect thing. Yes. And so they didn't want to let you like them. Yeah. And And I got into that at the end. But yeah, it's... I feel like they just shot themselves in the foot. Uh Uh-huh. And maybe you don't have to release a movie every year. That's a good idea. Looking at you, Saw. Looking at you, Paranormal Activity. Yeah. Star Wars. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Would you like to start the plot rundown or shall I? I will. Um, So we open on the outside of a movie theater. There's a long line outside and the marquee, not macabre. The macabre reads. (laughs) The macabre. The marquee <laughs> says they're playing Stab. Ooh, what's that? I don't know. The inside of the theater is decorated for the movie, and there's ghost faces everywhere. Ooh. A young, attractive couple waits in line, and she complains that she hates scary movies while he tries to defend them. And she replies, it's a dumbass movie about some dumbass white girls getting their white asses cut the fuck up, okay? <laughs> I like it. I like her in this movie. She's sassy. I absolutely hate Jada Pinkett, and I always have. I'm not and a big fan of her in general, but I like her in this movie. 
like as soon as she popped up in this movie, I was like, oh, I really hope she's the first kill. <laughs> I don't know why. She just has always rubbed me the wrong way. And uh, if I say that, I hope I'm not going to get slapped by her husband. <laughs> so they discuss the whitewash of horror movies while walking into the theater. At the entrance, an employee hands them a ghost face costume. And Maureen, the lady, says, oh, look, it's white, which I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Inside the theater is packed and the people are all rowdy. All kinds of people have the ghost face mask on and people are chasing each, each other up and down the aisles with fake knives. An they're, employee has. They're throwing popcorn and yelling and acting like complete madness. fucking douchebags. Yes. I said it looks fun while also looking like my worst nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> So the couple takes their seats, and on screen, we see that Stab is based on a book by Gail Weathers. <gasps> we know her. We do. The movie begins to play. It's a very typical horror blonde girl getting ready to shower. She disrobes, and the phone rings, she answers, and there's a stranger on the other end. I've seen this before. This feels familiar. So Maureen shouts, hang up the phone and star 69 is ass. And then people boo. <laughs> one thing i really liked i really wish i could have been in the theater for this when the uh theater worker like is turning that crank and the ghost face i did have that mentioned flies over the top of the crowd and then uh, they kind of lost me when they said it was filmed in stabovision yeah and they just like turn on some black lights (laughs) and people's masks and fake knives glow scary i was like oh that's that you lost me there yeah so Maureen's already fed up with the movie and goes to the lobby to buy a medium popcorn with no butter and a small Diet Coke. Nope, Diet Pepsi. I put gross. What's the point of eating popcorn? I hope she gets stabbed. <laughs> In line behind her, two girls discuss that the movie is based on a true story. Hmm. So Maureen makes her way back to the theater and opens the door. And then a person wearing a ghost face mask pops out of the closet next to her. It's her stupid boyfriend. And she scolds him and tells him that she doesn't like being scared. And he apologizes and heads for the bathroom as she wakes her way back to their seats. Okay, so I have a problem. When she goes out to get her popcorn, there are tons of people just milling about in the lobby. Mm-hmm. The movie has started. Yeah. And he's like, uh, I'm going to go pee now. Yeah. Why didn't you do that before the movie started? I don't know. Oh, There's still people like running around and being crazy during the movie too. Yeah. Like, like no. Watch the fucking movie. People go to the movie and they sit down and then the movie starts. Yes. So the boyfriend enters the bathroom and there's a ghost face at each urinal. So he can't use the urinal. So he checks the first stall and it's locked. But the second one is open. He goes in and he's getting ready to pee. But he hears a voice coming from the next stall. And it's a lot of rambling. And and (sighs) at one point you hear it go, Oh, be good, mommy. Yeah, it's a lot of, I'm sorry, mommy. I didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry, mommy. It reminds me of the weepy voice killer for some reason. And it just. (laughs) So he leans his head against the panel to hear better. As he's intently listening, Ghostface plunges a knife into the panel and into the dude's ear. And then he falls dead to the floor. Yes. Okay, that's a pretty cool kill. It is. But not practical. Not at all. (laughs) What is that knife made out of? I don't know. <laughs> that it can punch through a metal stall wall yeah. and into somebody's head. Well, and it's like, even if I knew right where your head was, uh huh, I still couldn't get that. No. There's no way. 
So back in the theater, the movie it's re- is reaching its first act climax. A person wearing her boyfriend's jacket and a ghost face mask sits down next to Marine. She tells him that he got back just in time. The girl's going to get it. The girl on film is running for her life, and Marine buries her head into her boyfriend's shoulder. When she pulls her hands away, she sees that they're covered in blood. Ghostface leans over and stabs her right in the gut. And you know why he did it? I think they were right in a scary movie. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if it was the first or second scary movie, but the lady's sitting there screaming in the middle of the theater, and like she answers her phone. Oh, being obnoxious. Yeah. You know, Jada Pinkett was just sitting there talking to him in normal conversational tone in the middle of the theater. And then she kept sitting there going, oh, here it comes. Uh Here it comes. I'm like, shut up and watch the movie. She deserved every inch of that knife. (laughs) So Maureen tries to get away. But because of the big scene on screen, everyone is yelling and stabbing and having a good time. Ghostface comes up from behind and plunges the knife into her once more. And then he takes off. And Maureen, instead of going out into the lobby for help, decides to go to the stage of the theater. Yes. (laughs) And she lets out a really ugly scream before dying in front of the entire shocked audience. Yeah. And everybody was like, oh, good. She's gone. (laughs) (laughs) And then screen two flashes on the screen. Now we cut to a bright sunny day on what appears to be a fancy pants university campus. We see Sydney face down on her bed in her dorm room and the phone wakes her. It's a ghost face voice on the other end. She doesn't sound concerned at all and she asks, who is this? And the caller says, you tell me in ghost face voice. Mm -hmm. So she picks up her caller ID box and reads his name and phone number off. And then she checks the time and starts spouting a bunch of legal jargon at him about crank phone calls being punishable under law. And he goes, oh, shit, and then hangs up. (laughs) And she just goes on about her day. Her roommate, Hallie, comes in and asks if they need to change the phone number again, but she says, eh, it's opening weekend. It'll die off. Her roommate turns on the TV, and Cotton Weary is doing an interview. Sydney doesn't look pleased to see him. And he explains that people still treat him a little odd due to his being an accused murderer. Probably because you're fucking weird, Cotton. Yeah. So Sid's roommate, Hallie, reminds her that she needs to get her button gear and get to class. Then she reminds her that they're going to a sorority mixer that night. Sid doesn't want to go and compares Greek life to organized religion. Score one for Sydney. (laughs) We're really going to delve into how I feel about Greek life. Okay. Another dorm liver comes up and is a terrible actress and tells him, check out the news. Did you (laughs) dorm liver? Yeah, she lives in the dorm. She's Uh, a dorm liver. Okay. I hyphenated it. All right. (laughs) So Sid and Hallie go back to their dorm room and they find out about the murders of Maureen Evans and Phil Stevens at the stab premiere. Sydney immediately wants to go find Randy and Hallie just knows exactly what class he has right now. Mm -hmm. As soon as Sid steps out of her building, she's absolutely swarmed by reporters. And then we cut to a film class where the professor posits that what happened to Phil and Maureen in the theater is a direct result of the movie itself. Sarah Michelle Gellar disagrees, and she says that 
That is so moral majority. You can't blame real life violence on entertainment. And a couple students disagree with her and they're very obviously going to grow up to be Republicans. (laughs) Now Joshua Jackson speaks up with his GOP views and then Timothy Oliphant piles on by saying, it's a classic case of art imitating life, imitating art, imitating life. Oh, I could have used a lot more Joshua Jackson in this movie. Yes. And then another bad day player speaks up and is a bad actor. (laughs) And she had biology with Maureen, and that makes this tragedy all about her. Of course. Now Randy speaks up and says, life is life. It doesn't imitate anything. Timothy Oliphant retorts with, with all due respect, the killer obviously patterned himself after two killers who have been immortalized on film. The teacher asks if Timothy Oliphant is suggesting that someone is trying to make a real-life sequel. Randy scoffs at this and says, sequels suck. Then the class gets into the argument about sequels and their value, and two James Cameron movies are brought up, and Sarah Michelle Gellar tells Timothy Oliphant he has a hard-on for Cameron. And you know what? Timothy Oliphant, it's okay if you have a hard-on for me. Because my (laughs) name is Cameron. The teacher dismisses the class and says, that's a wrap on the sequel discussion to be continued. Oh, he's so clever. The class groans and Randy makes his way to Sydney, who is standing in the doorway. And someone asks Randy how he would do a, a sequel differently. And he says, I'd let the geek get the girl. So he's still got a thing for Sid. Poor Randy. Sid and Randy walk outside, and Sydney can't believe that 300 people in a theater watched a murder and just thought it was a publicity stunt. Sid says, it's starting again, Randy. He shrugs it off, and she accuses him of being in denial. Then Jerry O'Connell shows up. He's dating Sydney, and his name is Derek. They kiss, and Randy doesn't dig it. Mm-mm. We cut to a chaotic scene on the campus. There are police cars and news vans all over the place. And there's a lot of chatter from a lot of different people. The music here is terrible. Yeah. And so is the shot, actually. Now we see Gail. She's talking on her phone with maybe her agent. Yeah. They apparently told her that the studio is considering pulling Stab from the theaters after the murder at the preview. She tells them, They'd be stupid to pull this movie. With all this free press, they're going to have huge numbers this weekend. It'll break box office records. So Gail hasn't changed. No. She has gotten a makeover. She has. She looks great. She she has chunky red stripes in her hair. Well, I, I like it. Okay. It was of the time. It was of the time. They called those red lights. Oh. One of our friends got red lights for free from Regis Salon at the mall. (laughs) You remember that? Yes. (laughs) So Gail meets her new cameraman that the affiliate sent over for her, and she tells him what she expects of him, and then a woman approaches her. It's Lori Metcalf from Roseanne. It's Uncle Jackie. She (laughs) She tells Gail that she writes for the local paper and flatters her a bunch, and then asks her for a quote. Gail tells her, your flattering remarks are both desperate and obvious, end quote. Gail's a bitch. (laughs) As Gail walks away from Debbie Salt, the local reporter extraordinaire, Debbie gives her a very ominous stare. Mm -hmm. The chief of police, Chief Hartley, begins his press conference to discuss the murders at the theater, and for some reason they're doing it on the campus of the college. Yeah, they were college students. Oh. 
So Gail immediately hijacks the press conference and bombards the chief with questions. And all the other reporters just kind of like let her do it. Yeah, she t- completely takes over the, the press conference. Sydney and her friend group walk up to a little platform overlooking the press conference and Mickey starts filming on his handheld camera. Randy tells Sydney that he's going to go in for a closer look. Derek says, so that's her, and stares at Gail. Then some sorority girls come over and they start trying to recruit recruit Sydney, and one of them is the Noxima fresh-faced girl herself, Rebecca Gayhart. Mm-hmm. And the other one is Ellen's wife. Portia. Mickey discusses the sorority girls, and uh, Hallie takes some offense since she is pledging. She really wants to be in their sorority. Oh, yes. Sid does not. No. Then Sydney spots Dewey from across the courtyard and runs to him, and we get the Dewey music. The doo-doo-doo-doo. Mm-hmm. Derek seems very jealous that Sydney's running off to this limping man with a mustache. <laughs> Dewey came to check on Sydney after hearing the news of the murders. He's such a good guy. Sydney tells him that everything was going great in life up until the whole murder thing started again. She tells him that she got her first starring role in a play, and her new, apparently not psychotic boyfriend Derek is a gem. Dewey reminds her that if somebody's trying to make a sequel to the Woodsboro murders, they're probably already in her life. And I think this scene does a really good job of establishing that everyone in her life is a suspect. Mm-hmm. Because Derek, Mickey, and Randy were all acting a bit creepy at the press conference. Yeah. Hallie's being just a little bit too clingy with Sydney. Mm-hmm. And then Dewey shows up out of nowhere right after the murders mm-hmm. go down. So right away you're like, uh-oh. Well, and then Gail's right there. Yeah. Like, you've set everybody up. And then... Gail gets this new cameraman she doesn't know. Yeah. Sydney kind of snaps at Dewey for reminding her that someone in her life is likely trying to kill her again. Then they share a nice moment and Dewey tells her he just wants to stick around to make sure Sid is safe. Now Mickey gets a little creepy again. I Going back to the scene where they're in the gazebo, uh-huh. I don't like it because it's shot to make it seem like there is a lot of sexual tension between them. I didn't get that. Really? I just thought it was very Dawson's Creek. No, they are like inches away from each other and they both keep looking at each other's lips. Oh, really? Yes. Well, maybe Nev and 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 uh, completely blanking on his name. David Arquette. David Arquette. Maybe they had a little something going. I don't think so. I don't know. It was just shot very like, are they going to kiss? Oh, I And I'm like, it- no, that's gross. I thought it felt very big brother, younger sister that haven't seen each other in a while. Yeah. You know, like the Folgers commercial. Oh, wait. I was going to say, I don't talk to my brother. Like, <laughs> hi. Let me put my mouth on yours. Let me touch my nose to your nose. <laughs> when I see my brother next, I'm totally going to do that. <laughs> Just smash your face <laughs> against his. I've missed you. So Mickey gets a little creepy again, and he's kind of relishing the fact that the chief of police said that Marine was stabbed seven times. Yeah. He's like, the police chief said the girl was stabbed seven times. He's kind of excited about it. Yeah. Their conversation gets interrupted by Gail, and the camera is rolling, and Gail brings Cotton Weary into the picture and starts trying to do like a gorilla interview with Sydney and Cotton. Not a cool move. No. Cotton seems very gracious and tells Sydney that I forgive and forget, Sid. And Sydney looks like she's about to lose it. Sydney starts to go after Gail, but Derek holds her back. 
Then Sydney disengages and she acts like she's going to walk away. And then she spins around and decks Gale. And it's here that we get a fantastic quote from this movie. Hallie looks at Joel, the cameraman, and says, did you get that on film? And Joel mocks her and goes, yes, I got that on film. (laughs) Also, I want to shout out another horror movie review podcast called Did You Get That on Film? Oh. Uh, Ruth and DP, they do an excellent job, and y'all should give them a listen. You can find them wherever you find podcasts. Like this one. Yes. So Cotton's not pleased that Gail didn't inform Sydney of the interview, and then he tells her, he was promised 10 minutes, and Gail yells at him, you get your 10 minutes when I get my goddamn interview. He points at her and says, don't walk away from me, Gail, I'm still, and then he squints his eyes very tightly Mm -hmm. and says, Gail, I did my part. What was he going to say? I don't know. Do you think he was going to say, I'm still dangerous? (laughs) So Gail is storming off and she encounters Dewey, who tells her to leave Sid alone. He also fires some attitude at her and uh, says she deserved to get punched. Then he quotes a bunch of negative things Gail said about him in her book. And he he knows the page he, numbers. Yes, he has, he's practiced this speech every day until now. <laughs> yes, he is ready for the next time he saw Gail. Yes. And then Dewey gives the best Dewey line ever. I love this line. How do you know that my dim-witted inexperience isn't merely a subtle form of manipulation used to lower people's expectations, thereby enhancing my ability to effectively maneuver with any given situation? <laughs> because you're a spy, Dewey. Yes. yes. <laughs> I love Dewey so much. And so does Gail. She gives him a little smile and apologizes to him. And then Dewey just slams her hair and oh. walks away. <laughs> He walks away and he comes back to slam her hair and then walks away again. (laughs) Yeah, he walks away, comes back and goes, by the way, nice streaks. Well, and I like that he says he has some oozing to do. Yes. I like him. Dewey's the best. Yep. So Sid and Hallie go to the frat sorority mixer. I don't know what a mixer is. I don't either. Portia and Noxima greet them and they are both super chipper. And Sydney completely blows them off. At Omega Beta Zeta. Omega Beta Zeta. Sarah Michelle Geller gossips on the phone with a friend when another call beeps in. She tells the friend she'll call her right back that Ted is on the other line. She switches back to Ted's line and greets him by name. And the caller replies, who's Ted? And then we get a fun stinger. Do you know who the friend she was talking to on the phone was? No. It's Selma Blair. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a little Cruel Intentions reunion. That's cool. So SMG isn't phased at all like we are because we know Ghostface voice. She doesn't. She asks the caller who they are and who they want. And then he tells them everyone's gone for the night. She's the sober sister. So she has to stay for someone to call her if they need a ride. That's very responsible. She tells a strange man that she's all alone in a house. Well, they have a security alarm. Okay. He asks her several more questions before she gets fit up, asking who they want to leave a message for. And the caller asks her if she wants to die tonight. And he knows her name. Mm-hmm. She hangs up, calls her friend back, and locks the front door. And then she hears a noise from upstairs. And then another noise from upstairs. So she's smart, and she leaves the house. But the phone is too far away from the receiver, and it gets all staticky. 
I like that when she's all freaked out and she's on the phone with Selma Blair, Selma Blair's all like, kill, 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 die, 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 die. <laughs> like all Friday the 13th yes. style. Because that is so something I would do if I was on the phone with yes. one of my friends. And they're like, oh my God, I think there might be a psycho killer in uh-huh. my house. So her friend on the phone tells her not to panic, just to call campus security. Sarah Michelle Geller, Prince. Buffy and Summers. <laughs> calls security but the connection is too bad and they can't hear her so she finally steps back inside the house a little bit more and a sister Donnie startles her leaving the house for the night she comes out from like the side room I don't know what that is the third living room sure but she scares the shit out of her anyway the phone rings and Donnie answers it Omega Beta Zeta and the caller says he's Ted and he asks for Cece and then behind them, we see Ghostface enter the house. <laughs> He's like high-stepping it. He's like, I'm in the house now. Ghostface in this movie is ridiculous. Ghostface is a bumbling moron in He's this like movie. He's like a comic book character. Yes. He like soft shoes into the room like, uh-huh. hello, my darling. <laughs> so Donnie hands Sarah Michelle Geller the phone and reminds her to set the alarm and lock the door. On the phone... Ghostface tells Cece he's not Ted. You wish it was Ted. And don't forget to set the alarm. Run outside. (laughs) She hangs up the phone and sets the alarm. And then she hears noises coming from another part of the house. So she walks around to check on things. Don't do this. She's the vampire slayer. She knows she can kick this guy's ass. So she's in a different part of the house and the phone rings again. It's a clear plastic phone. I had one of those phones. Oh, we all wanted one. And when it rang, it lit up with like orange Christmas lights on the inside of it. Yeah, I got it as a Christmas present. That's pretty swanky. I know. Sarah Michelle Gellar answers the phone and then Ghostface jumps out from the closet attacking her. She runs upstairs, Ghostface on her heels, and then she throws a tree, a plant, a bike, anything she can at him. (laughs) And I... Again, Ghostface is such a bumbling idiot. Yes. Ghostface goes charging at her, and she just, like, ducks, and Ghostface goes flying (laughs) over top of Cece and lands on, on like, like a display table with some flowers on it that Mm -hmm. were in, like, the middle of the foyer. Yeah. And then he, like, he keeps falling as he's trying to run up the steps. Yes. It just... They're they're not very together. No. They seem inexperienced. She ends up on the top floor. Don't just keep running upstairs. No. I know you tried a couple doors, but like, you know the layout of this house. There has to be another way. Ghostface catches up to her and throws her through a set of patio doors onto a balcony. Then he stabs her three times before throwing her over. And Sarah Michelle Gellar lands with a splat and a lot of blood. And then we get a ghost face knife wipe. Yes. And I wrote, goodbye, Sarah Michelle Geller, Prince Jr., Buffy Ann Summers, Cece Cooper. <laughs> That's quite a name. So back at the part- party, Portia and Noxima talk up the sorority some with Sid some more. Poor Hallie. She's the only one that wants to be in and they're not paying any attention to her. <laughs> no. And she's really like, look, I'm standing right next to Sydney. I'm right here. Hello. Uh-huh. Look at me. And then the sorority girls mention that Jerry O'Connell, because that's what I call him, his name's Jerry O'Connell. Well, yeah. Is in the frat, and they like to keep it in the family. Ew. 
Gross. So Sid just blows them off again. And I like that she's like, wow, you guys have given me a lot to think about. Thank you. <laughs> Randy shows up with drinks at the same time that Jerry and Timothy are walking up. Where were all these people? Timothy is Timothy, Oli Elephant. <laughs> Timothy Olio Elephant. I know it's Oliphant, but he's Oily Elephant. Yes. And Timothy mentions that to Randy that The Empire Strikes Back is a better movie. And Randy tells him that doesn't count because it's part of a trilogy. All planned out beforehand. So Parsha and Nagzima announce that there's something happening at the Omega Beta Zeta house. There's cops and cameras everywhere. So people start leaving the party to go have a looky-loo. Did you see what Derek was drinking? No. He was drinking a Mickey's grenade bottle. I thought you were going to say a Zima. Oh, <laughs> a hangover in a bottle. So at Omega Bega, I always want to say Bega, Omega Beta Zeta. Omega Beta Zeta. Uncle Jackie's there and she gets the scoop on the death. Gail arrives just as she's leaving and she razzes Gail <laughs> about only now just getting there. So Debbie was like first on the scene. Mm-hmm. And then right after the murder happened, Jerry O'Connell and Randy and Timothy Oliphant all showed up at the party at the same time. Yeah. Hmm. Everybody's a suspect. It is. They are. Dewey happens to be standing right there and he and Gail discuss it happening again. And then how happy that would make her. (laughs) Oh, and Dewey just showed up at the crime scene. Exactly. So Gail's upset and then she calls for her cameraman. And her camera guy shows up and he's like, um, I, I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> I shot the bingo finals. I'm not. What? I'm not ready to start filming Faces of Death 14. <laughs> so Gail looks him dead in the eye and says, do not fuck with me. And then he just follows her with like a dog with his tail between his legs. You know what? I would be afraid of Gail. I would too. I'd be like, okay, Gail. Yeah. I, please don't yell at me anymore. I can't take exactly. it. Exactly. So then Jerry offers to walk Sid home. She goes back into the empty house to grab her jacket while Jerry waits on the front porch. And he tells her. He's like, yeah, go inside and grab your jacket. I'll walk you home. Yeah. Why are you sending her into a house by herself when there's murders happening? She's Sidney Prescott. How do you know she had a jacket? You weren't even there. Oh, good point. Jerry. Come on, Jerry. So the phone rings and she ignores it at first, but it continues to ring and ring and ring. And so finally she answers it and we hear, hello, Sydney. Remember me? If you're Sydney Prescott, just don't answer the fucking phone no, anymore. You can answer it. Just put it like. Be like, uh, uh, like Omega Beta Alpha. Sorry. Bye. Yeah. And then leave it off the hook. She calls him a coward and says he should show his face. And then Ghostface springs out of a side room, slamming the front door. And then lunges at Sydney. And this is the first time we hear Ghostface talk mm-hmm. not on the phone. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was so awesome it when is, I saw yeah. it in the theater. I was like, oh my gosh, he's talking and it's not on the phone. So the door is locked and Sid can't get out. And Jerry's on the other side trying to get in. And Ghostface plunges the knife into the door, m- narrowly missing Jerry's face. Once again, what kind of fucking knife is this? That knife... <laughs> It just went through a whole ass, like, heavy, thick, wooden door. Yeah. And you know sorority houses? Those things aren't built cheap. No. 
Ghostface chases Sid around the house. She finds the patio door open and makes a quick exit. And then Jerry pops up in front of her from seemingly nowhere, asking if she's okay. When she says she is, he runs back into the house because he'll take down the killer. Yeah. Good job, Jerry. Dewey arrives to help, and Sid tells him that Ghostface and Jerry are still in the house. And we hear a bit of a scuffle from inside, and then Dewey enters. He finds blood on a door, and behind it, Jerry's on the ground bleeding with a very superficial cut. And and his story, it's pretty weak. Yeah. He just cut me and ran that way. Yeah. He, he didn't stab me. Yeah. He just sliced my poor little arm a little bit. Hmm. So Dewey runs in the direction Jerry pointed, but he only finds Portia and Noxima looking in like the Shining Twins. <laughs> and I like that uh, Ellen's wife is like, is everything okay? Yes. And here I put, is it Portia and Noxima? Are they trying to get their 10 minutes of fame? I mean, urban legend. Mm-hmm. So Dewey goes back and back to Jerry and performs first aid while Sid stares all teary-eyed like, Oh, great. It's happening again. And I think Sid feels like this is all her fault. Because it is, Sid. It's not. She's too pretty for it to be her fault. (laughs) Now we cut to a hospital where we see Mickey walking out of a room with a detective who thanks him for his cooperation. It looks like Hallie's next to be interrogated. And Mickey tells her, this was the easiest interrogation of my crime-filled life. Why are they interrogating people at the, the hospital? Because that's where the people were. I don't think the police have a home base in this movie. Okay. <laughs> it seems like they just well, hijack. They, do, they are in the cop shop at one point. That is on the university campus. That's true. I really think they just hijack whatever building they're around and they're like, this is where we work. Okay. So Hallie leaves to go get coffee and Mickey sits down next to Sydney. He asks how she's doing and, you know, she's not doing well. No. Mickey tells her that all of her friends are here for her and Sydney laments that Derek could have been killed. But Mickey reassures her that he's okay, and he just needs to realize that the 90s is no time to play hero. Why would anyone go back into that house anyway? It's a good question. And as he said this, he gave Sid a look. It's a very pointed look. Mm -hmm. And then Sydney has a look of epiphany on her face. Like, oh no. We cut to the interior of Derek's hospital room, and he's telling the chief of police how everything went down. The ER doc tells him that he's lucky there was no nerve damage from his little slash. And another cop says, so he just cut you and ran away? You're lucky he didn't kill you. Dewey's standing by the door, and he chimes in with, yeah, it's awfully convenient. (laughs) To which Derek responds, say what? (laughs) Do you remember that? (laughs) Everybody used to say that. Yeah. Say what? Say what? So Dewey backtracks and says, it's just a shame he got back so, or he got away so easily. And Derek fires back with, "It's just a shame you got there too late, right after he disappeared." Hmm. Suspect, suspect, suspect. Is it Dewey? And then Derek makes makes a point to look at the chief and the interviewing cop. And I wrote here in all caps, "Suspicion abounds." <laughs> so we're back on the campus now, and it's still crawling with cops and news vans. Joel, the cameraman, is reading a book and looking very freaked out. Inside a building that I guess is the cop shop. I put police station. Chief Hartley is writing the names of the killed on the chalkboard. And so far we have Maureen Evans, Phil Stevens, and Cece Cooper. 
Gail seems to put something together here, and she asks if Cece is the girl's real name. Chief Hartley tells her that Cece's real name was Casey, and then Casey looks over at Dewey and says, Gail. as in, what? Gail looks over at Dewey. What did I say? Casey. Oh. <laughs> Casey's been dead a while. Yeah. So Gail looks over at Dewey and says, as in, Casey Becker. Oh, I've heard that name before. And after giving Dewey that look, she's like, she gives another look towards Hartley, like, I'm cracking this case. Mm-hmm. Gail goes to the chalkboard and gives us the M.O. of the killer before the cops even figured it out. At a girl, Gailer. Unless she's the killer. <gasps> Suspicion. She's showing these dumbasses what's up, though. Yeah. And also, I don't mind the red streaks in her hair. You do you, girl. <laughs> Gail shows that the first victim was Maureen Evans, like Maureen Prescott. The second victim was Phil Stevens, like Stephen Orth. The third victim was Casey Cooper, like Casey Becker. The killer is remaking the original killings with new victims. Of the same name. Yes. Then Dewey tells the chief that it looks like they have a copycat on their hands. Uh, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> A killer in a ghost face costume is hacking people up near Sidney Prescott. Did you seriously just figure out that this was a copycat? Or did you actually think that Billy Loomis or Stu Mocker came back from the dead to continue their work? <laughs> well, maybe it was just some other random person that just decided to start killing and Sid just happens to be there. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Dewey asks Hartley if they can organize protection for Sid. And he tells Dewey he already has his two best detectives looking out for her. That's good. Campus security detectives. I bet they're awesome. <laughs> so we cut to the quad or the courtyard or whatever. I don't know college things. Derek and Sydney are walking together with the detectives just a few steps behind them. And Derek comments, how am I ever going to get you alone? And Sydney's like, yeah, that's kind of the point. Uh-huh. And she tells him that he should stay as far away from her as possible. And he asks her if she means it. And she does. Mm-hmm. She frames it as not wanting to see him get hurt again, but you can see in her eyes, she's like, I don't trust you, boy. Yeah. Now he asks if she's concerned for his well-being or if this is about trusting him. She tells him again that she doesn't want to see him get hurt. It's not just not convincing. No. Sid walks off and Derek gives a creepy look back towards the detectives who are kind of giving him the stare down. Mm -hmm. Like, we know what you're up to here. Nobody trusts anybody. No. So we see Dewey and Gail leaving the building that they were just in. I think it's part of the college, but maybe it's the cop shop. I don't know. <laughs> Gail says she's, she's going over to admissions to do some legwork and invites Dewey to come with her. And he shoots her down and tells her, I'm not here to write a book, Miss Weathers. I'm here to help Sid. And Gail says, so am I. And help myself, too. Mm -hmm. At least she's honest. Mm -hmm. And she asks him to smile. And he tells her, I'll smile when I catch the killer. So Debbie Salt and the gang of other reporters swarm Gail, and they start asking who she thinks the killer is. She tells them she isn't there to do their job for them, and then Debbie Salt brings up Dewey as a possible suspect, and Gail shuts that shit right down. Mm -hmm. And she says to the local writer, Dewey's a good guy, unlike some of us. And then she storms off. And Debbie Salt seems to have some preternatural abilities here of seeing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Because she says, well, if the killer's trying to recreate Woodsboro, it would make sense that the killer's from Woodsboro. That's all I'm saying. 
well, how did you know that? Yeah, the cops just figured that, that out. That was a pretty big jump to conclusion there, Debbie. She wasn't in the meeting with Dewey and the chief and Gail and the chalkboard. No. She didn't have the chalkboard. Maybe the chalkboard talked. Oh. Um, I, I don't know. It's selling tips to the local media. Mm-hmm. So now we cut to the cafeteria. Do you not like this scene? I fucking hate this scene. I love this scene. <laughs> He's making moves on Sid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Randy, okay? Okay. <laughs> So Mickey approaches a table where Derek and Hallie are sitting, and he asks Derek if he thinks Sydney would let him interview her for his documentary. And Hallie reminds him that Sid has already turned down Primetime Live, Dateline, and 2020. You know, every major news program. Yeah. Mickey looks a little perturbed by Hallie, again, because she just keeps slamming his dick in the door. Mm-hmm. Now Mickey suggests to his lunchmates that Randy might be the killer. And he says, I know he's an innocent victim the first time around, but you got to admit, he's a little off. And Hallie says, come on, Randy, that guy's harmless. And Mickey retorts with, that's what they said about Dahmer. Oh. So Sydney comes to the table to sit down and they all hush up about the murders and their suspect theories. Derek pulls out a chair for her, but she completely ignores it and sits across the table from Hallie as far away from Derek as she can be while still being at the same table. Mm -hmm. And Derek looks pensive and Mickey asks him what's up. Then Derek starts to quote the opening lines from I think I love you like he's just telling a story. Then he jumps up on the table and bursts into song and jumps from table to table. Mickey gets the crowd going, clapping along with the song. Sydney laughs and Derek comes back to her seat and gets down on his knees in front of her as he ends the routine. Everyone in the cafeteria is clapping for him and the detectives look very worried. Yeah. They're like, this guy's dancing on tables. And... Well, it's, he's causing a scene. Yeah. Right? Then Derek gets Sydney out of her seat and makes a big spectacle out of giving her his necklace with his Greek letters on it. And you know what? He's just doing this in front of Satan and everybody. And Hallie's like, oh, that's a big frat Mm no-no. The brothers are going to kick his ass. But it's tradition. Mm -hmm. Greek life sounds more stupid the more I hear. Yeah. Randy and Dewey meet for coffee. And they see an interview on TV about Stab. And Randy complains that they got Tori Spelling. (laughs) Callback. To play Sydney, David Schwimmer to play Dewey, and some nobody to play him. Which is also funny because David Schwimmer is in Friends. Yes. Courtney Cox is in Friends. Yes. Just to explain that to you in case you didn't know. What's Friends? I don't know. I don't have any. Oh. (laughs) You've got me, babe. (laughs) Um, The station plays a clip from the film, and it's the scene where Billy, who is played by Luke Wilson. Looking a lot like Trent Reznor. Yes. It's the day after he's been released from jail, and... He tells Sydney that she needs to get over her mom. It's a very dramatic and very terrible scene. <laughs> yes. And then the com- camera cuts back and Randy just looks at it and says, I think I'll wait for video. Randy explains to Dewey the rules for a sequel. Number one, the body count is always bigger. Number two, death scenes are much more elaborate, more blood, more gore. And he starts to explain number three, but Dewey interrupts him to say that he just wants to know how to find the killer. Randy runs through the suspects. Obviously, there's Jerry, the boyfriend, Mickey, the freaky Tarantino film student. But Randy says if Mickey is a suspect, that means he's also a suspect. 
to which Dewey points out, he could be a suspect. And then Randy retorts, well, if I'm a suspect, that means you're a suspect. And then they just kind of move on. <laughs> and I love how Dewey gets that look of realization. He goes, you're oh, right. Uh-huh. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, do you remember that being like the 45 second TV trailer? Yes. Like, I think MTV played that every commercial break. Yeah. For a month. Because his face there is so perfect. Yeah. You're right. Let's move on. They move on to Hallie, the roommate, because it'd be something new and exciting. And then Randy suggests Gail, saying she could do it to she could be doing it to write another book. Dewey defends Gail, saying that she's a lot of things, but she's not a killer. And then he kind of switches and starts like thinking, I don't know, maybe she could be. Yeah. So outside, after reading some of her book, the camera guy confronts Gail. He says he wants to record the news, not be the news. He points out that black men don't last long in situations like this. But Gail gives him a pep talk. This is national news. This could be huge for you. Don't you want to be a part of it? I can't do it without you. And he agrees to stay. She's a good manipulator. She's a good motivational speaker. Until she gets those bangs in three. (laughs) In a stage theater, Sid's talking to her director slash professor. And she thinks that she should step down because between the murders and the movies, she just feels torn. And he tells her to use it. Then he explains the similarities between her character and her and tells her to use the strength. Cassandra is one of the tragic visionaries of literature. Uh Uh-huh. The cast runs through the play as a dress rehearsal. And the scene's kind of spooky. There's like lightning flashing and thunder rumbling. And And if I could just take a moment to talk about how good Nev looks in that stage makeup. She does look very, very good. Her hair's all like done up and she has that stage makeup on. And like when she pops up and pulls that veil off Mm -hmm. of her head, I'm like, hello, (laughs) you Canadian princess. Grr, Don't ever make that sound again. (laughs) All the actors in the chorus wear hooded robes and theater-like masks. I don't. They're kind of like Greek theater masks. Yeah, they look. They look like alternate versions of the tragedy and comedy Mm -hmm. masks, but like they're cut out of Mayan stonework. Yeah, that sounds good. So the scene calls for the chorus to attack Sid slash Cassandra, and she runs through the mass of characters, all stabbing at her. She keeps seeing glimpses of Ghostface Mask through the actors. And then Sid collapses to the ground in fear when she thinks that Ghostface has caught her. The actor that she's scared of removes his mask and is like, what's up? Are you okay? (laughs) (laughs) And then the director runs towards the stage as all the other actors take off their masks. And we see that Portia and Noxima are two of the chorus members. They would not be in a play. No. So Sid's shaken up and she runs it backstage. I absolutely loved this scene. All the chaos yes. going on on the stage. It's scary. And then you're like, is Ghostface actually there? Mm-hmm. Or is this just her trauma and fear like manifesting yeah. in front of her? And we don't really get the answer. Yeah, like you don't know if it's PTSD. You don't know if yeah. it's real. And like they all have their little like stage uh-huh. knives with them. And you're like, did she just see masks and a stage knife? And she was just like projecting yeah. ghost face and the buck knife. Something to think about. I like, 
I don't know how many times I've seen this movie and I'm still like, was Ghostface actually there? I don't think he was. But yeah, good scene. Mm -hmm. Sid's alone when Jerry arrives announcing that he's going to be her escort home for the night. And she asks, where's Mickey? Because he was supposed to take her home. And he says that him and Mickey had to switch. Mickey had to edit. Sid's suspicious and tells him that she just needs to be alone right now. (laughs) She just tells him to fuck off in the nicest way possible. And Jerry tells her that being alone isn't the answer. And then she responds by pretty much breaking up with him. Yeah, she's like, okay, you go away forever. Yeah. In the quad, Dewey, Randy, Gail, and the cameraman are all talking strategy. And Gail is smoking, which I can't handle. <laughs> like, I know Courtney Cox smoked at one point, mm-hmm. but like, it just looks weird. Well, weren't there beats about that on Friends, too? Wasn't there like she started smoking again and they found her like out on the like rooftop patio? I don't think so. Oh, I thought there was. I don't think they ever bring up smoking in Friends. Really? I don't think so. Dewey asks when she started smoking, and Randy replies, ever since those nude pictures on the internet. Gail whips her head around and says it was just her head with Jennifer Aniston's body. <laughs> she threw her friend right under the bus. Her friend. <laughs> I also wonder, after this movie came out, how many guys went home from the theater and were like, wait, there are Jennifer Aniston nudes on the internet? <laughs> with Courtney Cox's head? <laughs> Gail wonders if the killer is following a pattern and if they can figure out who's next. She mentions who else died next in Woodsboro. The cameraman hears about the other cameraman and then he says he's going to go buy some drugs. (laughs) I'm going to go buy some X, not Malcolm. (laughs) Gail's phone keeps ringing and ringing and she's kind of ignoring it. So Randy finally answers it and says, Gail's not available right now. And it's Ghostface on the other end. And he knows they're all together, and he has eyes on them. Yeah, he says, you three look deep in thought. Mm-hmm. And then he says the scariest line ever. Ugh. <sighs> so, I don't, I don't know if I wrote the whole thing, but it's basically, have you ever cut through flesh and felt the knife scrape against bone? Have you ever felt a knife cut through human flesh and scrape the bone beneath? Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it either. Dewey tells Randy to keep the killer on the phone so that they can see if they can find him. So then all three of them start running around, finding anyone talking on their phone and ripping the phone out of their hand to find out if they're talking to Randy. Guy playing catch with a football knocks into Randy from behind, scaring him. And the killer taunts him, telling him that he will never get the girl and (laughs) never be the star of the movie. And Randy replies with, Fuck you! I know, I like his fuck you there. Gail and Dewey full-on assault a kid that's talking on the phone. (laughs) Dewey dives on him from like a five-foot wall. (laughs) And then we cut back to Randy, who's continuing his conversation with the killer. He calls the killer out for being unoriginal. And why would you make Billy and Stu your heroes? And then he goes on a long-ass rant. And then from behind him... Ghostface grabs him and pulls him into a news van. Can I just can I just read his his little diatribe here? Oh yeah, go right ahead. So he taunts the killer right back and he says, Where's your innovation, huh? Why copycat two high school loser ass dickheads? Stu was a pussy ass wet rag. And Billy Loomis? Billy Loomis, what the fuck? 
Jesus, what a rat-looking, homo-repressed mama's boy. Why not set your goals higher, huh? You want to be one of the big boys? Manson? Bundy? OJ? (laughs) And those were the last things that Randy ever said. R.I.P. Randy. A group of hip-hop gentlemen walk by with a loud boombox, so no one can hear the struggle between Randy and Ghostface. They're listening to Cottonmouth Kings. Is that what it is? I have no idea. So Randy and Ghostface wrestle for a bit, but ultimately Ghostface kills Randy. We don't get to see him stabbed, but it's kind of a cool shot where we can like see Ghostface through the rearview mirror. Yeah, like the side view yeah. on the van. I thought that was cool. Yeah. And you know what? I don't want to see Randy get all cut up. No. Like just, I think seeing the knife raise up mm-hmm. and plunge back down was more powerful. Yeah. Yeah than if you had seen Randy get the business. Mm-hmm. Well, and like, Jamie Kennedy's such a joker that like, I don't think I could see his face <laughs> being killed. Well, and they might not have been able to get a straight it's, that's, take. That's true. Gail and Dewey realize that they've lost sight of Randy. And they reach the news van at the same time as the cameraman. And he notices that the window is broken. So Dewey opens the door to reveal a very dead Randy. A ghost face mask in the seat and an open driver door. Um, hello, DNA. Yeah. The killer was wearing that costume. It's 1997. Yeah. DNA. I mean, C- CSI was around then, wasn't well, it? No. Really? I thought, I thought CSI has been around for like 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> they have like 30 seasons, but that's not necessarily Cause, 30 years. Because like, didn't CSI start with that redheaded guy that would always take off his sunglasses and make a quip? What was his name? I don't know. We're going to look up. I feel like, I mean, I know they knew they had DNA at that time. Yeah, but I, I heard on a podcast not too long ago, I think DNA was first used in forensics in like 1986, maybe 88. Yeah. When, Look, when CSI start? It looks like the first one started on October 6th, 2000. Oh, it's not as old as I thought. Sydney's in the library working on a computer, and she gets a message that says, you're going to die tonight. And it had to have come from someone in the lab because she wasn't signed onto the network. Mm-mm. The nice man next to her explains it to her. Yes. <laughs> She stands up, knocking over her chair to see if she can spot who sent the message. Her police detail check up on her. Up pops, the police can't save you. So the cops put Sid in a safe spot to the side and proceed to check on every computer monitor in the cluster. I like that their safe spot was, go stand next to this huge open doorway. Out of our sight. Yes. (laughs) Go stand behind this bookcase next to a big open doorway. Yes. You'll be safe there. They're not very good cops. No. They're campus cop detectives. (laughs) They're used to like, who threw this beer bottle on the ground? Yeah. So while she's alone, Cotton Weary pops up from around a corner, demanding to have a word with her. He tells her that Diane Sawyer is interested in an interview. And he's very money hungry. Well, and he's very... uh, He's just off-putting. He's very forward. Yes. And aggressive. Yeah. And like he opens their conversation with, you sent me away to prison. I did a, over a year for you. You can give me two minutes. Yeah. And you're like, oh, maybe he's not a good guy. No. While they're talking, Cotton blocks Sid from leaving several times. And I put, he's so creepy, but not like 
in a scary way. No. It's more like he's trying not to be scary, which makes him scarier. Well, and anytime he gets angry, he does that like squints his eyes yes. really tight thing. And I think this was the first scene that I had ever seen with Leah Schreiber where I was like, dude can act. Yeah. He goes on to tell Sydney that he owe, or she owes him. But Sid finally gives him a final no. And then he follows her back into the library, yelling and causing a fuss. And then the two cops handcuff him. Lovable and fucked up Sidney Prescott, everybody's (laughs) favorite little victim. So now Cotton's in Chief Hartley's office, and they're asking him about why he was yelling at Sidney. And he reminds them that they have a very complicated past, and... He hasn't <laughs> he hasn't committed a crime except for raising his voice in a library. That is a crime. So the chief comes down on him for being complacent about the murders that they're dealing with. Outside the window in the chief's office, we can see that Dewey is breaking the news to Sydney about Randy's death. Mm-hmm. She looks very distraught and Hallie is with her and Sid says that she needs to call Randy's mom. And then Dewey says, Sid, I already made that phone call. Mm hmm. And it's just one of those real deflating scenes where you're like, he didn't survive it. No. He really is dead. Mm-hmm. Back in the chief's office, Cotton again proclaims his innocence and tells the cop, until you find me standing over a dead body with a knife in my hand, I think you better treat me with the rights and privileges accorded to every innocent citizen in this country. Is there a problem with that word? Innocent? I know. That's a big one, chief. <laughs> he just like... <laughs> Cotton is something else. And this, I I wrote here, like, these two shot or scenes back to back, I was Mm -hmm. just like, Leah Schreiber is one hell of an actor. So the chief comes out and talks to Dewey and tells him they have to cut Cotton loose because they don't have anything on him. Gail is watching Cotton be released, and he sees her and says, Gail, enjoying the show? The cops are funny. And she asks what he's doing, and he just wants his 15 minutes of fame. Mm -hmm. And then she tells him not to do anything stupid. And then he looks at her very menacingly and says, you were so instrumental in my freedom. You're not having character doubts now, are you? And then he just struts away and Uh hands Sydney his business card. Yeah. So Dewey tells Sid that they're going to take her somewhere safe. And apparently Hallie is allowed to go with her. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a wise idea. I think... If you know the killer is going after somebody and the killer's most likely connected with that one person. Just isolate her. You take that person somewhere alone. Mm-hmm. Chief Hartley tells her that they're enforcing a campus lockdown and no one's allowed out after dark. So they are just positive that this killer is a student. Mm-hmm. That's all that only place they're looking. Mm-hmm. Well, because time doesn't exist outside of campus. Well, that's true. I mean... The cop shop's on the campus. Yeah. So Dewey promises Sydney that he's going to find the killer. Outside, Gail walks out of the campus police station. I'm still confused by mm-hmm. that. And the reporters flock her and ask her how it feels to be on the other side of the news. Um, Woodsboro ring a bell? She, she's been there before, guys. <laughs> Cotton comes out of the school jail place, and the reporters mob him, and he tells them that his arrest was a total misunderstanding. And then he asks Gail if she wants to pose for a photo op. That's what's creepy, too, is like he changes. Yeah, he just turns on a dime. Yeah. So Gail walks away and Debbie Salt, local reporter extraordinaire, is there. And she asks Gail 
how it makes her feel to know that someone is waiting, watching, enjoying all of this. Like somebody that said all the crime scenes mm -hmm. and knows everything that's going on before the police do. Uh -huh. So Gail wheels around and loses her shit on Debbie Salt and says, look, local woman, I know that you hold me up as your career template and it gives you some sort of charge to challenge me, but give it a rest. Then Debbie Salt gives her a half apologetic and half angry look mm -hmm. before apologizing and rushing off. Joel comes over and quits as her cameraman and drops a duffel bag with all of the footage he shot for her at her feet. And Dewey comes out of the office college cop shop and Gail tells him that she feels bad and wants to catch the killer. Dewey limps up to her and grabs her bag of footage. And then Gail gets the idea that if the killer really is watching and relishing everything, like Debbie Salt told her they are, then they're going to be on all this crowd footage that Joel shot. Okay, kids. Who have we seen at every crime scene? Can you remember? This could be important in the future. <laughs> now we see that the sun is starting to go down. Dewey and Gail are in the film school building, and Dewey has a flashlight despite the fact that the lights are all on. <laughs> Thank you. I made note of that, too. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to find a VCR. They're going to start going through the footage. Well, they finally find one of those big amphitheater-style seating... Lecture halls? Lecture halls. <laughs> And they do the classic rom-com thing of bumping heads while both bending over to pick something up. Mm -hmm. And then the Dewey and Gale love theme starts playing. They fast forward through some footage and we see the part from earlier in the movie where Dewey tears into Gale. And he apologizes to her for being rude. And she apologizes for hurting him. Then she strokes his face and they're like, it's time to make out. <laughs> Not even make out, like fully go on. Like, like She pushes him onto a... A desk yes. and straddles him. And then all of a sudden, footage of Maureen and Phil standing out of, outside of the theater the night they were killed starts playing. Gail looks over and she's like, that's not my footage. Mm -hmm. And then she has to tell Dewey to get his hand off her boob. <laughs> and then we see some footage of Cece on the phone in front of the sorority house. And then some footage of Randy on the phone with the killer. Then we see a live shot of Gail and Dewey filmed from behind them. They spin around, and they see Ghostface in the control room above the classroom they're in. It's like a projector room. Mm -hmm. So Dewey gives chase, but the killer is no longer in the room when he gets there. He comes out, and there's a stab movie poster on the wall next to the projector room, which I don't understand. No. I, I feel like a college film professor wouldn't be like promoting stab. No. <laughs> so Dewey looks down from the top of amphitheater-style room at Gale, and then Ghostface pops up from behind the desk, right behind her. And he has his trusty buck knife with him again. Mm -hmm. Gail takes off running, and the bumbling idiot that is Ghostface 2 falls down a couple of times, and she manages to escape. And then the bumbling idiot that is Dewey falls down the steps while trying to limp run down them. It's because he has a limp. <laughs> Gail finds an unlocked room to hide in, and then she finds this room also has an interior room that she can go into. She checks the outer room and sees Ghostface through a large window. He comes into the interior room, and Gail hides in a maze of soundproof panel walls. Then she spots a storage closet she can hide in, but it doesn't have a lock on the door, so she says the F word. Mm -hmm. Dewey finds the room Gail ran into, and he can see her through a soundproof window. He pounds on it, but she can't hear him because it's soundproof. <laughs> He's right behind her, and Ghostface comes up behind him. 
Ghostface stabs Dewey and throws him to the floor. On the floor, Dewey finds a microphone and shouts into it. Gale hears this and turns around just in time to see Ghostface pick Dewey up off the floor, pin him face first against the glass, and stab him in the back several times. Dewey sl- I, I have problems with this. Okay, first of all, she might not have been able to hear Dewey, but she definitely would have seen all of that commotion behind her. She was staring at the door. Yeah, you still know, you feel movement behind you. Yeah. Secondly, why would Dewey, if Dewey thinks he's going to die, why would he say Gail's name at that point to be like, hey, Gail, watch him kill me? Yeah. That's kind of a dick move. Maybe he was just trying to warn her that Ghostface is out here. Maybe. So Dewey slides down the glass, trailing blood, and Gail follows him to the floor on the opposite side of the glass window, crying and screaming, but we can't hear it. Because it's soundproof. Mm -hmm. The score gets very grandiose, and Gail turns her face up towards the killer and stands to face him through the window. He takes off running toward the door to the room that she's in, and she knocks over a heavy storage rack to block the door. Now Ghostface is like, you know what? I'm just going to break that window and come in and kill you. But he can't because the glass is really strong. It's very strong. He beats on it. He throws a chair against it. You know what? It's not working. Nope. Can't stab through that. No. So Gail does the dumbest thing that someone can do in this situation, and she kneels down and puts her head down on a desk and takes her eyes off the killer. Yeah. Never take your eyes off the killer. Don't do that. When she looks back up, the killer is gone. Sid and Haley, Hallie. Hallie. Thank you. Exit their dorm room, building, with the cops, and Jerry's outside waiting to see her off. She reluctantly gives him a kiss goodbye. The car leaves, and behind Jerry, there's a lot of movement. It looks like someone in a ghost face outfit, but not quite. Yeah, because it doesn't have the hanging down arm dangles. <laughs> then another man in a robe approaches him from the front. Then he's swarmed by all of his frat brothers, followed by Portia, Nagzima, and some other random-ass girl. At the frat house, they tie Jerry up. Is it a prop from the play? It's not the frat house. They're on the stage. Oh. That's why there's beer bottles and cans all over the stage later. Okay. I was confused by that. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, they like went to the frat house with a prop and then they took it back to the stage? No. Was, okay. That makes a lot more sense that they were just like... No, they just tied him to the prop on the stage. That makes sense. So it's almost like he's like crucified to a giant sun. Uh-huh. In his underwear. Yeah. They have a party, and everyone throws beer on Jerry. There's a funnel in his pants. Greek life. It's good old hazing. Looks like fun. (laughs) Sid, Hallie, and the cops stop at a stoplight, and Hallie asks where they're going, and the cops joke that if they tell her, they'll have to kill her. Not a good joke. Question. You're transporting civilians, one of whom you're trying desperately to protect from a killer. Uh Uh-huh. Why are you in a cop car? where the back doors do not open from the inside and the people in the back are trapped in a cage. Use your own vehicle. You don't need to use your cop car. They don't have their own vehicles. Oh, because they're campus police. They just live on campus. Suddenly, Ghostface pops up from beside the car, breaking the window and slashing the driver cop's neck. Ghostface slides over the roof and grabs the other cop as he's getting out of the car. And then he slams the cop's face into the window over and over and over and throws him in front of the car. 
but I don't think he's dead because he didn't stab him. He just smashed his face a whole lot. So Ghostface pushes the other dead cop out of his seat and hops in the driver's seat. The not dead cop stands up, aiming his gun at Ghostface, and Ghostface puts the car into drive and heads straight for the cop. He ends up on the hood and gross ghost face, not gross face, gross face, <laughs> drives erratically trying to get him off. They drive through a construction area and hit, they hit everything possible. Yeah, he's trying to shake the cop from the roof. I know. Or the hood. <laughs> Before finally crashing into something. Now the cop dude is dead. Yeah, he gets impaled through the head with a large pipe. Like a metal rod goes through his head. And he gurgles and uh-huh. stuff. He's like. <laughs> like, that's probably the grossest thing in this movie. Yeah. And it's not even that gross. No, it's. it's the sound is gross. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he was twitchy. Yeah. I don't like twitchy. Ghostface is passed out, but not dead. Sid and Hallie are trapped in the back of the cop car because the doors won't open from the inside. Yeah. Don't transport innocent people in that car. Yes. But the metal rod thing that went through the cop pried a kind of hole open in the, what do you call that? Like a- Like security grating? I put it a grate or screen inside the car. I called it grating. Okay. So Sid uses it to pry it open, um, and then she climbs into the front seat. She tries to open the passenger side door, but it's pinned. She leans over Ghostface, ready to unmask them, because that's what you want to do right now, Sid. Not get out of the car. Let's unmask the killer. I can kind of understand, but maybe just do it as you're passing by. (laughs) Don't, like, make a big production out of, like... No. So while she's doing this, she accidentally honks the horn and scares herself to death and falls back into their seat. So she reaches over Ghostface again to try the door, but it's also jammed. So then she has to climb over them and exit through the window. That's scary. Yes. This scene is very tense. Yes. Sid finally gets out and tries to open the back door for Hallie, but it's also stuck. This was a bad crash. It was. (laughs) So Sid tells her that she also has to climb through. Hallie's not down for this. She's like, I... (laughs) I think I'd rather not. Yeah, but she does. She gets in the front seat and she climbs over Ghostface and then Sid helps her get out of the car. They start to run away, but Sid pauses for a moment and you can tell she wants to go back in Scooby-Doo. Yes. She's like, (laughs) I really want to pull that mask off. Yes. And have them tell me they would have gotten away with it. Yes. And Hallie tells her that smart people run. Dumb people go back. We're smart. Let's run. And you know what? I still like... I understand both sides. I do too. Because if Sydney pulls that mask off. It's done. Positively IDs the person. Then she just goes back to Chief Hartley and she's like, hey, it's this person. Yeah. Find them. But it's also scary. But Sid explains to her that she's tired of running. So she goes back to check on Ghostface and the car is empty. She turns around to tell Hallie just as Ghostface springs out from behind some plywood and stabs Hallie a bunch of times. And then Sid runs away. So then we cut back to Gail, and she's left her safe room. Safe room. room, And is running through the hallways of the film school, and she runs into a very bloody cotton. He explains that he found Dewey and was trying to help him. But Gail does the smart thing and then runs outside. You said runs into a very bloody cotton. And I just like... I just went to like a towel. Oh, I thought you were going to say tampon. <laughs> oh, that too. 
<laughs> no, I just like she runs into very bloody cotton, and I'm like, oh, like a, a towel or a bed sheet, huh? Oh, the touch, the feel of cotton. Is it the fabric of your life? Yeah. She runs to the nearest payphone, which Uncle Jackie happens to be talking on because, you know, Debbie, she's there all the time. I think she lives on campus, too. I think so, too. And Gail grabs the phone from her. Debbie's upset because she was calling in a story. But Gail tells her, I've got your goddamn story. And then she calls the police. Which is like the, the police are like right down the street. Yeah, just run there. They're just like in the next building. They're in the library. Yeah. <laughs> And she tells Debbie that Cotton fucking Weary is the killer. And then Debbie goes, Cotton Weary? <laughs> In an empty theater, someone turns on the score from Sydney's play. Sid's still outside running when she hears it. And thinking it might be her professor, she runs inside shouting for help. This is where the movie just falls apart. Yes. Once she's on the stage, like she enters the building and starts looking around yelling for the press professor. She doesn't find anybody. Then she's on stage. The music cuts. A spotlight shines on her. And then the prop wall begins falling down behind her, trapping her in. <gasps> and then this is where I put, it looks like there's been a party on stage. Yeah, there, there was. There's beer cans, a bra, and Jerry's shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Hey, you were taking notes late at night. Yeah. Behind her, something comes crashing down. And it's a person tied to the sun thing wearing a theater mask. Sid unmasks them, and it's Jerry, her boyfriend. And he's so drunk. Yes. He's very passed out, and she has to slap him to wake him up. His biggest concern was that he thought he was going to be stuck up there until opening night. <laughs> and you know what? I think this was the first time in the movie where I liked Derek. Yeah. <laughs> because so he's so dopey and yes. out of it. He's like, oh, Sid, thank goodness you're here. <laughs> And Sid's like, uh, we have bigger problems. The killer's after me. Ghostface appears. Sid's trying to untie Jerry. And then in Ghostface's voice, the killer asks if that's a good idea to trust the boyfriend. And then talking in his normal voice and taking off his mask, Mickey, Timothy Oily Elephant, <laughs> reveals he is the killer. And he tells Sid that history has a way of repeating itself. Don't trust your boyfriend, Sid. Don't. And then Mickey goes on to complain that he's been on his own all night since Jerry was tied up. Jerry pleads with Sid, saying he's innocent, and turns to Mickey and tells him he's going to kill him. Mickey responds by pulling out a gun and shooting Jerry in the chest. And then Sidney clasps her hands over the wound like she's going to stop him from bleeding internally. Well, like, what are you going to do? Like, if I got shot in the chest, you're probably going to put your hands over my chest. No, that's icky. That's where your juices are going to come out of. <laughs> Remind me not to die in front of you. I, If it was something I knew I could stop, but like he just got shot in the heart. Yeah. But Jerry's final words are, I never would have hurt you. Never. Never, ever. I also have to say, props to the special effects makeup department. Yeah, that's a, that's a badass shot. Yes. Like when that hole blows in his mm -hmm. chest. And then it shows it in like, oof. Yeah. I imagine that's what a real gunshot wound looks like. I think so. So now Mickey looks at Sydney and says, you really should work on your trust issues, Sid. I mean, poor Derek. He's completely innocent and such a nice boy, too. He's bright and funny and handsome. 
had a decent singing voice, and he was gonna be a doctor. That's just the kind of boy you'd take ho- like to take home to mom if you had a mom. Oh, burn. And then Sydney doesn't like the mom comment and yells, fuck you, at Mickey. And Mickey replies, oh, so vulgar. Did Billy let you talk to him this way? And Sid fires back with, Billy was a sick fuck, just like you. Not a great line, but, you know, she's under pressure. (laughs) So now, Mickey's going to lay out his craziness for all of us. Yeah. Because at the end of a Scream movie, the killer has to lay out their crazy. They have to give you their whole speech. Yes. Well, where Billy and Mickey differ was Billy wanted to get away with it. Mickey wants to get caught because these days it's all about the trial, baby. His defense is he's going to blame the movies. Then he says, can't you see it? The effects of cinema violence on society. I'll get Dershowitz or Cochran to represent me. Bob Dole on the witness stand in my defense. Hell, the Christian coalition will pay my legal fees. It's airtight, Sid. Huh. Something tells me that Mickey would be really big into the alt-right movement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, maybe he could follow us on X. <laughs> That's where all those people like to hang out. So he continues spouting off in his crazy way, and he tells Sidney that Billy knew what was up because it's all about execution. Well, while he's going on his crazy rant, Sidney has taken off her necklace with the Greek letters on it, and she's wrapped it around her hand with the little pendant thing with the letters on it hanging down. Mm -hmm. And she tells Mickey, you forgot one thing about Billy Loomis. I fucking killed him. And then she swings her hand with the pendant hanging off of it, and it cuts Mickey's face. I don't, she doesn't have it like wrapped around. I think she just has it to where she can whip it. She's just holding the end of the necklace. Yeah. But it, she just like whips him in the cheek. And this that would guy, hurt like hell. This guy's been through a car accident. He's a deeply psychotic person. But I think she hits him like in the neck. Oh. It's, you want to try it later and we'll see if it hurts. I'm not a psychotic person, though. Well. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence, babe. But he like he recoils like a vampire who just got hit with holy water. <laughs> and I'm just not feeling it. Yeah. So Sid kicks the gun out of his hand and then runs to the back of the stage for some reason. That's not how you escape. Mickey recovers quickly and tackles her into the prop wall at the back of the stage. She fights him off. Then they're on opposite sides of a prop pillar. When she tries to go left, he follows. When she tries to go right, he follows. They're doing this like mirror image thing. Mm-hmm. So then she grabs his hands and pulls him towards the pillar and knocks his face into the pillar. And we're it, like, there's this huge thump sound. That's styrofoam. Yeah. <laughs> that was either styrofoam or cardboard covered in a little paper mache. Yeah. And we're supposed to think that was a big rock column that really hurt him in uh-huh. the moment. Oh, it gets worse. I don't understand why it would hurt the killer who just went through a fucking car crash, but okay. So Sid tries to run, but Mickey recovers again and points the gun at her. And she kind of hides behind Derek's corpse on the prop sun thing. And they do the mirror dance back and forth again. Mm -hmm. And then Mickey tells her, you've got a little Linda Hamilton thing going on. No, it's okay. I like it. Yep. (laughs) So now the Derek corpse prop gets raised back into the ceiling and Mickey puts his arms up and shouts, now who's doing that? Now we reveal the second killer. The door opens and Gail Weathers steps through the door. Oh no. Is she the killer? 
Oh, no. She looks at Sid and shakes her head no. (laughs) But then Debbie Salt walks in, pointing a gun at Gail. Sydney recognizes Debbie Salt as Billy's mother, Mrs. Loomis. She lost about 60 pounds and got a makeover. Mickey says that he met Debbie on a psycho website in the classifieds. Okay. (laughs) And he goes on again about how great the trial is going to be. And Mrs. Loomis tells him, oh, Mickey, there isn't going to be a trial. And then she shoots him in the chest three times. Yep. So Gail tries to run. And uh, (laughs) as she's running, Mickey falls to the ground. He's still holding his gun. And he accidentally squeezes off a shot that just happens to hit Gail. Do you think it's accidental? I think it was. I thought it was on purpose. And I was like, why would you waste the time to do that? You're dying, dude. Oh, I don't. I thought it was like he was just falling and like pulled the trigger. Gail goes crashing through the ramp that goes over the orchestra pit. And now the only way off the stage is through the door that Gail and Debbie just came through. Debbie tells Sid that her motive isn't as 90s as Mickey's. Mine is just good old-fashioned revenge. Okay, Debbie. (laughs) She's made everything traceable back to Mickey, since Debbie Salt doesn't even exist. Sid tells her that she's just as crazy as her son, and Debbie doesn't like this. Then Sid patronizes her and tells her, Billy was a good boy. You did a bang-up job. (laughs) Debbie admits that she is the one who killed Randy after he badmouthed Billy, and Sid gives her a look like, I'm gonna kill you, bitch. Like, you don't kill my Randy. Yeah. Sydney accuses Mrs. Loomis of abandoning her son, and we can see that this, this cuts Mrs. Loomis deep, mm-hmm. and she's at her wit's end with Sydney. Well, with Debbie distracted enough by her anger that she's starting to get sloppy, Sid tosses in, isn't Mickey supposed to be dead? When Mrs. Loomis turns around to check on Mickey, Sydney grabs one of the beer bottles left by the frat douches, at least they're good for something, (laughs) and bashes the killer over the head with it. Sid escapes through the stage door, and Debbie fires the gun after her. Then Sid gets a fire axe and starts cutting lines holding up the props on stage. And then for some reason, she starts playing with all the special effects for the play. I get the props on stage because she's like trying to drop rigs and stuff. Yeah. That makes sense but I don't know why she tries to make it scary. Yeah. She turns on the fog machine. Yeah. She turns on the lightning lights. She's using the big sound panel that they use yep. to make the thunder sound. Yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> so there's some chaos on the stage, and Mrs. Loomis ends up getting buried under a bunch of prop rocks and bricks that, again, are just like fucking cardboard covered in paper mache. Just styrofoam. It'd just be big styrofoam. Yeah. It, but we're supposed to act like this is like a big super danger and Sid might have really just killed the psycho with some styro. Yeah. So Sydney turns off all the special effects and starts making her way to the doors when Mrs. Loomis comes charging through the hole that Sid's special effects line cutting thing opened when a rig fell. You mean she's not dead? No. Somehow those styrofoam bricks didn't kill her. So she and Sydney end up back on the stage after some scuffling. As they're fighting... Debbie gets the upper hand on Sydney and is about to drive the buck knife right into Sid's face, and then we hear a gunshot. The camera cuts to Cotton, holding the gun that Mrs. Loomis tossed into the seats in the theater. He tells both of them not to move. Cotton jumps the orchestra pit, and Mrs. Loomis uses Sid as a human shield while holding a knife to her throat. Sydney tells Cotton who Debbie is, and he seems very shocked and hurt that she's not a local reporter. <laughs> 
He wants his fame. He does. And then he also tells Sydney to shut up. Mm-hmm. And you're like, uh-oh. Yeah. So Mrs. Loomis begs Cotton to let her kill Sydney. And she even tells him, as long as she's alive, you'll never be the top story. Cotton's face gets very serious, like he's really considering this idea. Sydney tells him to think about what he's doing. And Cotton says, I bet that Diane Sawyer interview's looking real good right about now. Sid looks at him with a stern face and says, consider it done. Then Cotton fires the gun, and we don't know who he shot because Sydney and Mrs. Loomis both drop to the floor. Mm-hmm. Then Sydney coughs and sits up, and we see that Mrs. Loomis has a bullet hole right through her throat. And her eyes are all crossed. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good shot, though. Yeah. yeah. He got her in the throat. So Sid goes and takes the gun away from Cotton, who promises he never would have hurt her. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Catch him in the right mood. But, but now we need to get our story straight for press. Yeah. Get your story straight. Just tell the fucking truth. What? Not like we need to worry about the cops coming and asking. We need to get our story straight for press. Yes. So Sydney goes to check on Mrs. Loomis's body when a hand comes up from the orchestra pit and grabs her. It's Gail, and she asks for help getting out. Cotton and Sid help her, and she says the bullet just glanced off her rib. Mm-hmm. So she knows that. That's good. Gail asks if Mrs. Loomis is dead, and Sydney says, I don't know. They always come back. That's weird. Then Mickey jumps up and scares the shit out of all three survivors. Gail and Sid pump several rounds into him, and Cotton shouts, Whoa! Then Sydney puts one in Mrs. Loomis's head, just in case. It's a good idea. Now we see Gail stepping out of an ambulance, and Joel approaches with a camera and her microphone, and he wants to be partners again since the danger is over. <laughs> we hear someone say, We have a live one here! And Gail turns her attention to the voice. Dewey is being hauled down on a stretcher and Gail runs to him. He's just like yelling for her. <laughs> Where's Gail? Then the EMT says the knife just went into some old scar tissue. It saved his life. You don't know that. You don't know that. You don't know that until there's an MRI, an ultrasound. And even like getting in there and seeing. Like, uh, oh. Okay. They just had to explain why Dewey was still alive. Yes. How about you explain to me why Randy is dead? Reporters swarm Sydney, and she deflects them by saying, Talk to Cotton. He's the man you want to interview. He's the hero. The reporters all run to Cotton, who tells them, Look, guys, no one wants to give you the story more than I do. Unfortunately, there's a time and a place and indeed a price for everything. So feel free to call me. And he starts passing out his business cards. Mm -hmm. One of the reporters says, come on, Cotton, tell us something. To which Cotton replies, I'll tell you one thing. It'll make a hell of a movie. Then we get a crane shot of Sid walking through the chaos on campus. And as the crane pulls back, we lose her in the crowd. Credits. That was a really bad ending shot. That was a really bad third act. That too. But, <laughs> but I put, Sid walks away alone. Like, literally alone, because all of her friends are dead. Yes, <laughs> except Dewey. So, we have a body count of ten people. Would you like to start it off, Mandolin? Phil. He got stabbed in the ear. In the turlet. In the turlet. Marine stabbed multiple times in the gut and then did a... <laughs> before she died. 
Cece was stabbed a lot and then thrown off a balcony. Hucked off the balcony. Hucked. <laughs> Randy Meeks, stabbed a lot in a news van. Rest in peace, Randy. Justice for Randy. Okay. I don't know the officer's name, so I just put Officer One. His throat was slit. I put undercover college cop guy too. <laughs> Impaled with road construction stuff. Yeah. Hallie just got stabbed. It was pretty boring. Very uneventful. Yeah. Derek, shot in chest. Debbie was shot by Cotton. Mickey, shot multiple times by multiple people. Yes. Mandy, give me your reactions. <sighs> I think this is my least favorite in the series. I do too. I like that the killer could be anyone, but it feels really forced and cheesy. Mm -hmm. Like they make you suspect everyone and it just feels over the top. Like why not just bring in the pizza delivery guy from Home Alone and be like, he did it. Yeah. I said, I don't really like Dewey or Gale in this movie. Dewey just appears weak and defeated and very dumb-witted. And Gale's just a money-hungry bitch. Mm -hmm. But I guess in the end, they're okay. And I put that none of the kills are memorable. The only one that's kind of cool is the first one where the dude gets stabbed in the ear. And that's just because of what it is. It's not yeah. like it was a cool kill, really. Well, and I think a scary movie really punched up that kill. Yeah. Because every time I see it, I just think of that guy having a dick go through his ear. <laughs> and then I put, maybe because I don't know the play, but I don't understand any aspect of that. Why was that added in? I call bullshit that Sid would want to be an actress. No, Sid would not want to be a star. Sid is quiet and timid. She can be ferocious, but it's not in her nature to stand out. No. Especially after what she went through. Do you think she wants to be in a stage in front no. of a whole bunch of strangers? No. So here's another movie that's not as good as I thought it was when I watched it critically. Because going into this movie, I would have been like, this is a solid eight. Really? Yeah. The third act of the movie was so rushed and not planned at all that I really felt like they were just flying by the seat of their pants. Mm-hmm. Had they waited another year to release this movie instead of having to release it less than a year after the original, they could have made a movie on par with the original. Like, they had the bones there. Yes. But they just didn't flesh it out. The score and the acting, the acting from the main cast, none of the secondary characters, are all excellent. The cinematography was great. The dialogue felt really forced through the mm -hmm. whole thing, though. And I don't feel like there were any real characters in this movie except for Sydney and Cotton. Yep. They were the only actual defined characters yes. in the movie. And actually, maybe Joel the cameraman. Yeah. Because he you, did a hell of a job. You feel more about him than you do about anybody else. Yeah. Like, I didn't give a shit about Randy until he died. No. And even then, it's kind of like, oh, it's just sad because it's Randy. Yeah. I don't care about him in this movie. No. It's just a, it's a big bummer of a sequel. Mm -hmm. Do you have any production facts for the kids? I do. Roger L. Jackson, who plays the voice, ad-libbed the line, have you ever felt a knife cut through human flesh and scrape the bone beneath? He just came up with that on his own. Just out of nowhere. Maybe somebody look into <laughs> Roger Jackson's past. The full script ended up getting leaked online, causing Kevin Williamson to have to rewrite a lot of the movie including the ending. Well, we can tell. During the rewrites, 
and Williamson being involved in so many other projects at the time, Wes Craven was forced to fill out parts of the script himself and flesh out the scenes while they were being filmed. Oh. Just take another year. Yeah, just take some time. This is kind of a long one, I apologize. That's what he said. (laughs) Eager to avoid the same experience on Scream 2, Craven attempted to manipulate the MPAA by sending a version of the film that had been edited to focus on and enhance the gore and violence present beyond what they actually wanted in the film including reusing a clip of Omar Epps character being stabbed in the ear three times instead of only once a scene in the final film. And then there's an extended scene of Randy Meek's death that showed his throat being slashed. Craven's reasoning was that the parts of the film that they wished to keep would be more acceptable when viewed by the enhanced violence. And so the NPAA would force them to remove the footage they did not already want to keep while passing the content they did want. It's a mouthful. That's pretty genius. Yes. However, the MPAA granted Scream 2 an R rating for the movie's more violent cut, as they believe the underlying message of the film was significant enough to warrant the violence. And you know that the Weinsteins were probably like, guys, look at how much money the first one made. Yeah. You got to let us have this. Yeah. <laughs> so potential titles for this movie were Scream Again, Ew. Scream Louder, Ew. and Scream The Sequel. Oh. I'm glad they went with Scream 2. Me too. I don't have any more facts because my one was so long. Uh, This movie didn't start filming until mid-June and was released in December. What? Yeah. Oh. There's also an alternate ending of this movie where a third ghost face watches Sydney from the roof of a college building after we think all of the killers are dead. Ooh. That would have been lame. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have any goofs? I don't. I do. Okay. When Ghostface attacks the cop car, they're stopped at a red light. Yes. He gets in after killing the driver and incapacitating the other cop. The car's in park. Did the cop driving the car put the car in park because they stopped at a red light? Maybe he did it when he got his throat slashed. He was like, oh, I just got to throw this in park real quick because it would be irresponsible of me not to. Yes. Staying in that same scene, because the whole third act of this movie is horrible. Yes. The cop that gets impaled after his wild ride on the hood of the car is very clearly a dummy. (laughs) I mean, very clearly a dummy. They didn't have the money. Yeah, only $24 million. In the theater, Sydney shouts Gail's name when she gets shot, but Nev Campbell's lips do not move. Oh. Her mouth is completely closed. (laughs) And somehow she screams Gail. She's a ventriloquist. She's really good at it. Mandy, who are you? Okay, you're going to think this is weird. <laughs> but I put that I'm Portia Nogzima. Please don't. <laughs> I said, but it's a combo of young me and old me. Young me, because I would have enjoyed all the partying. Well, yeah. Although not at like a sorority frat type of way. No, but you would have been like jungle juice. Yes. And now, like, old me, like me now, because now I'm old, would be fangirling so hard over Sydney. (laughs) And I'd be trying to butter her up and become her friend. But I said that I would hopefully be a little less vapid. Yeah. I I can't see you as being, oh, my God. No. But I definitely, like, 
finding somebody that like almost got killed. Yeah. Like, let's be friends. Tell oh, me all about it. Can you come on my podcast? <laughs> I said you're Dewey. Really? Because, hey, I'm here to help. Um, Can you help me help, please? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> because that, that was, that, yeah, that would be you. Like, guys, I want to help find the killer. How do I do that? Yeah. Can you tell me how to find the killer? <laughs> I said that you are a combo of Randy, Mickey, and Jerry. I don't want to be Jerry. Let me explain. I don't want to be the fat kid from Stand By Me. You should. <laughs> I, I said that we've established that you're Randy already, obviously. Oh, yeah. Um, And you're a little bit of a film nut. And I could see you being in like an online chat group full of weird people. Yeah. So that's why you're Mickey. And then I put your Jerry because you're a very good boyfriend slash husband. Oh, thank you, babe. And you would have done something stupid like that. Like jump up on a table and sing. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I've seen Top Gun. Exactly. <laughs> I said I'm Randy. I said I am and ever shall be Randy Meeks. I'm Randy and that's all there is to say. <laughs> <laughs> also, justice for Randy. He didn't need to die in this movie. He didn't? His death added nothing. That's true. But you know what? It This death did take away something. It took away Randy. It did. <laughs> Final thoughts and ratings. I gave it a six. I gave it a four. Really? I, 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 I really think a four is fair. I went with six, and then the more I, like, when I started writing all my stuff, I was like, I can't give this a six. I think like, you might have just talked me down to a five. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna change it. I'm going five. I put I rated it four out of ten, and as I said before, the movie's just too gimmicky for me. Mm -hmm. I like Mickey as the killer, but I don't like how they made him play the killer. Like his personality completely changed when he became the killer. Yes, he became Stu. And that that's my problem with the newest Scream movie when they reveal the killers in yes. that one. They all all of a sudden their personalities change. Yeah, and it's like that's. It just doesn't make sense. And I said that Mrs. Loomis being a killer is just bad writing. She cares so much about her son that she'd kill for him, but she abandoned him for over a year. Because her dad fucked around. Or because his dad yeah. fucked around. And I said, I just don't buy it. I would have honestly rather it have been Gail. Yeah, or Cotton. Or Cotton. They introduced several new characters that I did not give one shit about. Like pretty much all of them. I gave some points because Sid's a badass in this movie. She is. Um, and they show that she can defend herself. And I like Jerry's song and dance in the cafeteria. Ew. But I took points away for the writing. The camera work in this, in some places, is just awful. Mm -hmm. And the secondary actors are not good. Horrible. <laughs> like the dorm liver? Yes. Check out the news. The news. That's that all you got? That's all I had. So initially I said six out of 10, but I'm going to bump it down to a five. Sorry. So we have a 4.5 <laughs> out of 10, which I mean, that's on par with like a nun movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, this movie just falls apart at the end. Uh, I was okay with the killers and their reveal, but everything else in the final act was really lazy and rushed. Yes. I'm not exactly on board with Mrs. Loomis being a killer, but it did make sense canonically. You could tell that they were pressed for time and they just landed on the first idea that popped up for everything. Mm -hmm. And I, it's not an unenjoyable movie if you're doing 
like a marathon. Yeah. But like just, you can sit through it. But just to sit down and watch it on its own and be like, wow, I'm really in the mood for Scream 2. Yeah. I don't think that's ever happened. No. <laughs> I, I'll i still watch it every year during my Halloween movie countdown. Yeah. But And like if you're going through the franchise, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. But it has a lot of issues that they could have ironed out if they had just taken the time. Mm-hmm. Don't release a movie every fucking year. It doesn't work. Yeah. That's all I had to say. Well, that's how we felt about that. Uh-huh. So you can follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Blue Sky at Franchise Frights Pod, Twitter, X, and Snapchat at F Frights Pod, or you can just make it easy on yourself and go to our website, www.franchisefrightspodcast.com. Make sure you tune in next week when we hit the last movie of this round of reviews, Final Destination 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm so glad that's going to be the last time you can say that. I haven't said it for so long. I know. I think Child's Play 2, Electric Boogaloo, was the last one I did. That's good. So I guess until next Thursday. Remember, Remember, they they always come come back. That'd be a good tagline for a podcast. It would. Hmm.